welcome to the very final season of Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. Before introducing today's guest, I thought it would be pertinent to signal that in the written version of this intro, women is spelt with an X instead of an E, which isn't a perfect term by any means, but it is meant to indicate an inclusion of those who identify as trans and non-binary, and hopefully a more expansive view of gender. I mention only because I wanted my introduction of today's guest to address something that I have sometimes felt ashamed of in doing this podcast, which is that it predominantly features cis women, but I didn't want it to be a place where people who identify as something outside of that term didn't feel welcome as a result. In the context of inviting Leo to speak and having them come on the podcast, it didn't feel right, leaving that unacknowledged. So this week's guest is Leo Anna Thomas, who has 20 years experience in the art department and six as a standby art director on projects such as Small Axe, Trigonometry, His Dark Materials and Black Mirror. They are also the first well-being facilitator for the film and TV industry. Having experienced bullying firsthand, they stepped away from the industry in 2009 to look after their mental health. They returned in 2013, and as a part of that return, they began to develop the role of the wellbeing facilitator alongside Six Foot from the Spotlight, where they became a full-time facilitator as of 2020. We speak about their induction into the world of film through the medium of VHS, a full circle 28 days later moment, the role of the standby art director and why it's not just standing by to become an art director, and their work on the film Pride. And then we segue into the work Leo has been doing more recently in the world of well-being and mental health and how they've pioneered a new role in the industry that seeks to prioritise care, calm and compassion to ensure that film and TV productions can be more mentally healthy places to work. If anything you hear in this conversation chimes with you, I urge you to check out the show notes, which contain lots of links to further resources and websites about wellbeing facilitation. And I would also suggest you check out Leo's own podcast, Mental Health in Film, which gets into the nitty gritty of what that work looks like in practice across a plethora of different roles and perspectives. Please note that today's conversation includes mention of suicide and bullying, so listener discretion is advised. That's a longer intro than usual, so thank you for bearing with me, and I hope you get something out of this conversation. It was an important one for me to have, and I'm really glad to have gotten to do it with Leo. This is episode 135 of Best Girl Grip. like to start these interviews is I guess at the like the inception point of your career so I'm wondering if you recall the moment or experience or maybe even a person that sort of influenced your decision to work in film and tv or made you think that that was a possibility I think I was about 10 or 11 I remember getting a tv in my bedroom and I had my own little cocoon where I could watch whatever it is I wanted to watch and it wasn't with the family and I had my more free reign and more freedom to pick and choose. I was, my room was literally covered wall to wall with film posters. You couldn't see the wall. It was literally wall to wall with film posters. And um, I had like 350 VHS in my life as I grew up, not at 11 years old. And I just remember the joy of being taken to other worlds and learning about other stories and was completely enveloped in all of that. And I remember that being a really intense feeling when I was growing up. And I just wanted to be a part of that world or try and help make that world and being a creative person I naturally wanted to I used to tell everyone I was going to be in the art department and film and tv I didn't know what that meant I had no idea what that meant but I I studied art and then I studied some film on the side that's the kind of the clear moment was just having that tv in my room I can picture it now and I just remember going into these worlds and just thinking wouldn't it be amazing to help create that to help give that to other people and help produce those that's kind of the main memory I have that's really interesting. But obviously you knew the art department existed to be able to name it. What did you think it entailed? Yeah, that's a good point. I used to sit in front of the TV and press pause and write down all the people's names that worked in the art department and look up what the roles meant. I don't remember that point, actually, of thinking of I know what an art department is. I just knew that creatively what you see on screen, apart from the actors, is created by artists and, and art and art directors and again I just paused most films that I watched and used to and this was 
this was in the late 90s, mid mid 90s. So there's no internet or anything. I used to write people's name down and then eventually when the internet did come around, I used to find them online and then try and contact them to see if I could have a chat about their role and what it meant. Amazing, you're doing like an analogue version of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't remember how I used to, it, I think it was, it must have been early 2000s, yeah, when the internet had just come in. I remember being at school in the in 97, 98, when we were taught how to use a computer and then the internet slowly came in and CDs came in. So yeah, when I was able to, I would look these people up and just try and find how to contact them and talk about it because I had no idea how else to research it. That's dedication as well, because on VHS, it's like, it's not an accurate thing to pause it. And often when you do, you get the tape kind of words or it's like fuzzy as well. So it's actually have to like really get close to like read the names. <laughs> I love that. Yep, yep. And again, the lovely story is just, I used to, one of the films I stopped was 28 Days Later. And I ended up working on 28 Weeks Later as a trainee, like a decade later. And some of those people that I listed were brought back for that second time around and I remember just being like wow this is unbelievable yeah very cool full circle moment talk to me about how you started entering the industry and getting those trainee jobs you know how did you you know make that step from wanting to work in the art department to actually working in the art department I went to university to study fine art and film studies and there was something called shooting people I don't know if it still exists so while I was studying I was looking at all the listings to work for free to work as a runner my first job I was 17 I think was uh on a Kenneth Branagh short film and it was the first time I'd been to Pinewood and I was literally just a runner I was everything all departments for the production and then whilst I was at uni I just kept kept on that on mandy.com I think was one of them and I basically just anything I could sign up to whether it was a one-day shoot or a five-day shoot whatever it was I would try and attend it and just ask questions and learn more about the role and one of my f- other first contracts was with Amy Winehouse. No one really knew who she was. I didn't know who she was. I remember Googling her the night before and it was her first It was her first album and I think her first music video. It was in my bed music video. Maybe it wasn't the first, but I worked from 6 a.m. until 3 a.m. And it was for free. And, and then I got given 40 quid in cash and I was on top of the moon. <laughs> That's it. But it's hard work. It's hard work to, you know, but I had more energy then and, and more, well, I had, a, I had a curiosity. I had a drive and a passion to, in a different way that I have now. And what kind of work were you doing in the art department? Because obviously, you know, it's a big, it's a big department. There's lots of different jobs. And, and did you have a specific sense of the thing that you were going after? Or it was more, you know, a fact finding mission and doing all these roles to figure out what you were good at? Yeah, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. I just got in, thankfully, via a a scheme which no longer exists. And I was actually one of the last groups to go through before the the, uh, 2008 financial crash. Um, They lost all their funding. It was called Film and Television Freelance Training, FT2. I got onto a place on that and it was basically a two-year apprenticeship, which was incredible. You had to cover a specific area, which mine was art department, but you had to have placements, work placements in camera, in sound, in edit, in production to get to know how everybody worked. It was really fabulous. So on the trainee scheme, you know, did you get a sense of, oh, I'm really good at graphics or, you know, actually I'm, I'm really good at making props? I think I'm, I think mine was the other way around. I think I immediately knew what I wasn't good at. Technical drawing, I found extremely stressful. I, I did the courses. Um, I could not get my head around it at all. I could read the plans and read them, but I couldn't create them. And I found not at the speed at which was required and last minute changes. You know, I couldn't do it. I was in tears like every day during that course. So my, my journey was more, this is what I don't want to do. This is where I'm not comfortable. And I just kind of floated around to see what felt good and where my skills were utilized the most. And in the end, it was a standby art director called Lizzie Killam who said, I think you'd be really good as standby because I preferred being with people and communicating and talking with people and being on my feet and not sitting at a desk. <laughs> so eventually I fell into standby. But I'd done a number of different things before then as an art department assistant. I jumped around all different areas in the art department. You made the banners in Pride I saw in IMDb. Was that the literal banners that they held up at the protests? Yeah, the all the, all the Pride banners, yeah. The miners' banners were extremely delicate and in a different they uh were sewn embroidered and it was just beautiful I didn't make those ones they had a specialist come in and do that which was stunning I did all the, the yeah all the gay banners which which is where I met Lizzie Killam 
yeah, that was a dream come true. That was, I had a whole, a whole space to myself at the back of Ealing Studios in this kind of shed that when it rained, water would come through the ceilings. <laughs> and I just yeah, researched and was given research and videos to watch and worked with the graphics designer, Julian Nix, and Simon Bowles was production designer and just a wonderful team. And my name then was Anna. So I became known as Anna Banner. And it was really bizarre because for two years after that, all I did was make banners back to back. For some reason, there were films that were just required protest scenes and demonstration scenes. Um, <laughs> so that was not planned. And you carved out a niche for yourself. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I think a lot of this industry, you know, if you know exactly where you want to go and what role you want to be, then aim for that. That's brilliant. But I didn't really know. So I just kind of went with the flow and then fell into an area which I enjoyed for a period of time. And I'd love to unpack standby art direction because I, I feel like I have a good understanding of what an art director is, but I have to say the standby part is something that always goes over my head. So give us a little bit of a pricey of, of what that role is and what you're doing in it. Yeah, it's I, I remember talking to someone about this recently and they said that their family thought that they were just on set standing by for their job to come available. <laughs> So you're just, you're, you're just waiting to become an art director on set. Basically, you're the eyes and ears of the art department. So you get some prep time. You go through the script and break it down. In, I haven't done this for such a long time. You look at graphics, what graphics there'll be, what props, what action props, what food might be used if you need a home, if you need a, yeah, someone to come in and do the cooking. Um, action vehicles, everything like that. You're basically pulling apart what is going to be needed on the day in terms of the art department, looking at the drawings before going in, if you're on a set, like what walls might float out to give more space for camera and for crew. And then once you're on set, you're basically working alongside the director and the DOP. Everybody else, obviously, too. They're the main people I used to go to is obviously the director, DOP, script supervisor, first AD, to kind of know what's coming up, know what's happening. And getting the composition right, making sure the designer's goals are seen, um, and also what the director wants, things change last minute. So there'll be a redress or something might change on the day. New props come up, new graphics come up. And you're basically making sure that whatever you see on that frame, the composition of it all makes sense and the continuity of it all makes sense. And I enjoyed it. There's And it's, and it's kind of thinking on your feet and fixing problems in the moment or coming up with ideas to give the director what they want, but making sure that the vision from the art department and the designer is still seen and not lost as well. Um, and not compromised too much so it's like a negotiation and it's you know that's what Lizzie was saying that I was I enjoyed being with people and trying to sort out problems in that way or just just having a laugh really as well just enjoying it and having fun it was stressful don't get me wrong and you know it's there are so many personalities big personalities and egos on those floors sometimes it could be a challenge and a quite a clash so it's it's working out how to communicate and be a chameleon basically give everybody what they want without compromising that designer's eye, basically. You've been very open about the fact that you experienced a nervous breakdown while working in the film industry and subsequently left it for a period of time, I believe around 2009. Are you able to talk about any of the factors, cultures or behaviours in production that contributed to that? In 2009, I was a trainee, so I hadn't reached that point of being a standby then. But I was pretty much new in the industry. I must have been in it, gosh, three or four years maybe and I was being bullied on a job and I was exhausted I was 29 I think and I just thought is this is this what my career is going to be is this is this what happens is this how this works and I thought I don't want to be a part of that I can't mentally and physically be a part of that if that's if that's the pattern and the pathway of the industry I was quite mentally unwell um, I had a very supportive partner at that time and so took the decision what well, was kind of forced upon me I got physically ill my body was basically telling me just to get out and I left for about four years I think. And what did returning look like you know did you have a list of contacts or people that you were hitting up for work was it relatively easy to you know get back into work again or had the landscape changed in the time that you were away? I stayed in touch with about f- gosh it must have been four or five people that I'd worked with prior to 20, uh, 2009. And they were obviously within the art department and become friends. And when I say stayed in touch, I wasn't social with them per se, but I would just stay engaged with them on a monthly basis with an email, just checking in. 
I did that for like four years just to stay in touch because a lot of people were saying that, you know, you don't leave the industry because you leave the industry, you're not coming back in. And I, I remember being quite nervous about that, but I remember thinking that I, then if that's the case, that's the case, (laughs) but I need to not be here right now. So, and Pride was actually the first film in 2013 when I came back to the industry, that was the first film back. So anyone who's listening that is nervous about leaving in case they don't come back or can't come back, it's a load of bullshit. Excuse my language. It's if you, if you've got a good core people that you connect with, like genuinely connect with, then there's always a way back in. And there's other ways back in now as well in terms of, you know, an entrance scheme and stuff. It's more kind of available to step foot into it than it was when I started. So yeah, I, I just, I, I was working in retail at the time and I thought maybe I'd be visual merchandising. Maybe I'll do window dressing. That sounds fun. And I started researching that because it's creative. It's, you're, you're basically making a set and putting a show on in a, in, a, in a sense. And I realized how corporate it was and how blueprinted it was. There was no freedom to kind of make up anything. So again, same partner at the time was like, just leave and we'll slowly figure it out money-wise and just get back in the film industry and I think I don't know if I've glamorized this narrative or like changed it but I think it was like 24 hours as I was leaving the retail job I had that I had a call from the wonderful art director Mark Raggett and he was like are you still in the film industry hey what are you doing uh there's a film called Pride we need banners made you're good at making props it's a gay film you're a gay person do you want to come and do it do you want to come and interview and then literally like a week later, I was back into the film industry. But I guess it speaks to this idea of, you know, taking care of yourself first and foremost, and also surrounding yourself with people who know who you are and the type of work that you would be interested in doing, which, um, you know, isn't always easy to do. Yeah, timeline-wise, I guess I'd love to jump forward to the moment you started being aware of of needing or wanting a career shift, and I guess the why or how, um, in terms of you know well-being facilitation coming into focus as the thing that you could shift towards. When I came back, I just des- I, I I decided, and it was probably because of the amazing, supportive, friendly, approachable, talented art crew, art department that I was with on Pride, that I basically decided to tell people why I'd left. And be honest about it, I didn't name names, but I was just explained what had happened and why I'd left. And it was a, that was 2013. So this dialogue had started back then about why is there no one here that you could go to to speak to? You know, other sectors, not all of them, but other sectors have HR departments where you can make a complaint or you can speak to someone. And I basically, my brain started ticking about, well, why doesn't that exist here? And the more people I spoke to, they would share in confidence with me that what they'd been through, and they were horrifying stories. Like absolutely, it made my blood boil. It's like, why are people getting away with this? People train for years, and it's an ambition and a goal to earn a living in this industry. People are leaving because they're scared of being kicked out, and it's just. And I basically refused to be that person, basically. So I was just like talking to more people, and that dialogue led all the way up to 2017, where I lost a friend and colleague to suicide, Alan McDonald, production designer. And after his death, I'd found out that he was he was being bullied on a job. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. Fuck this. This is, it really shook me. And then a year later, another friend of mine, Morag Webster, who was a unit nurse, took her own life as well. And I was, I was speaking with her a little bit a couple of weeks before that happened. And so that kind of catapulted the conversations to be louder and to kind of find other platforms to share those stories. I went and trained as a mental health first aider. And then that was the idea that maybe mental health first aiders should be on set. Like mental health first aiders have to do another job at the same time. It's not the sole one job. And it then was obvious that that's impossible. You can't balance that with the workload. So I, um, I'm going off on a tangent here, by the way. I was working as a standby art director on season one of His Dark Materials. I basically made my own t-shirt that said mental health first aider on the back whilst I was a standby to test the waters to see if people would talk or at least reading those words mental health first aider on the back of my t-shirt would maybe shift something in the atmosphere on set and kind of in a weird way call behaviors out and also help people and um, I ended up being quite busy where I was missing moments on the monitor and not actually fully concentrating as an art standby art director 
so it was from that idea that I was like, okay, this needs to be a separate role. Why doesn't it be? Why don't we call it well-being facilitator? Because it covers everything and it facilitates the overall well-being of everybody. Um, so that's kind of how it began from there. But it's like been a conversation in my head and with other people since 2013. And when you were wearing that T-shirt, was it scary to sort of, you know, put that label on your back? I don't think it was scary. I think I had, um, I'd had enough. And I felt quite confident. I had no idea what the outcome would be. I just knew that there needed to be a discussion. And, I, you know, at that point, I didn't know if it was... I had no idea. I just, it was a major discussion to me and I just refused to keep quiet about it. And I just eventually was talking to more people, including producers, about the issues happening around the set. They're probably, you know, to be absolutely honest, you know, I'm saying that now today with confidence because I obviously knew the outcome. But looking back, I'm sure I had moments of, of doubt and I'm sure I had moments of being scared. I did struggle a lot when I was in the art department of not saying anything at one point because I knew that fear and I knew that existed still around me but overall I think I just had this driving tenacity of like I don't know what the outcome will be but I absolutely know that you can't this can't be kept silent. How how exactly were you helping you know obviously we'll come on to talk about well-being facilitation and the, the rigor and the policy that comes with that but in this relatively unofficial capacity was it more about holding space for people to vent or air grievances like what specifically were you doing in that capacity yeah it was basically given the mental health first aid training keeping abreast of what issues would would potentially come my way and know where to signpost people that's exactly what a role of a mental health first aider would be is to obviously not a counselor or a therapist not to try and fix people but give people a space to speak and hear them and help support them and signpost them to professional help there's an acronym in um, mhfa called algae so the a is for approach assist it's going to test me now this is approach assist can't remember the other one um l is listening uh, active listening non-judgmentally so you're not judging people um you're giving them that space to listen uh the g is for giving support so you're literally holding that space and giving them whatever support emotionally that they might need and the E is for encouraging that professional support and help like the signposting and the E again is also repeated as encourage for other support in terms of talking to friends and family as well so basically that's what I was doing I was I was my MHFA training I was keeping an eye on that and trying to make sure trying to learn still in that moment boundaries about how I was feeling and what I was hearing and what I I had no authority or power to actually change anything and that was a bit frustrating but also I think was a fire to push even more to make sure that there would be some more authority and kind of power to change and work with producers. So just, just holding space for people in confidence. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you made it official and also made it a priority so that it existed in its own right and wasn't just a role that was, you know, a secondary to or bolted onto another one? Well, it, doing season one of His Dark Materials, it, it was, yeah, it was a huge eye-opening moment of knowing that it did need to be a neutral separate role so from that other conversation the conversation was shifting about development at that point there were many productions and producers that would say okay well we'll hire mental health first aiders that's it but they were also boom operators or they were script supervisors uh they were uh hair and makeup designers i was like well that's that's and it was becoming i got nervous at that point that oh god that's what they're just going to think that's it now job done just have people on set that do that so the biggest challenge then was to convince people no it has to be a separate role still didn't know what that separate role was and I was put in touch with um Matt Longley who had been doing a similar thing in the music industry and was focused on music and we I remember having a like a long discussion with him on the phone and we started collaborating ideas and sharing an idea of what that role could be and that was the development stage of it really shifting. That was the turn. That was the pivotal turn of like, how to, how do we make this into a solid role? I'm really interested in the word neutral that you use there to describe what you wanted the role to be. Why is it important for a wellbeing facilitator to not have a stake in the material or the finances or the minutiae of production? Yeah, it's so the, the neutral third party is really important because, as you know, 
there's a huge stigma still in the industry of 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 not of people feeling they can't speak up to line management or producers or line producers about any issue that's coming up because it's not they're scared of being fired or seeing that they might rock the boat sometimes the issues are with those people so who do you go to outside of that so having that neutral role was to first off initially try and help break that stigma and have people still get off their chest what they need speak to somebody who has industry experience and the well-being facilitators we train we do tend to look for people who have come from the film industry so they know and understand the you know the etiquette and the language so having that person come on board who knows industry experience but is that neutral party people are more able to feel free and open up and share and then from that a wbf can signpost help empower someone to speak up and speak to their own line manager understand employment law and their contracts to explain that they're not going to get fired if they mention something and this was before the film and tv charity had their looking glass survey where one of the statistics that came back was that i can't remember the precise statistic but it was uh i don't know it, this is totally winging it it was over 50 percent of people actually felt more comfortable and safer talking to a neutral third party than they would their own managers so that was just like a solidifying the fact that this actually does need to remain neutral and what has the process been like of making this role more accepted and encouraging producers and line producers to include lines in their budget for a well-being facilitator? And then I guess once you are on set, you know, getting people acclimatised to your presence. Uh, I mean, BFI were instrumental in helping start the, in terms of budgets and having this role made available. Pretty Red Dress was the first film that we had spoke about in 2019 that was due to shoot March 2020, which obviously it didn't. But they were very instrumental in in understanding the importance of this role and therefore funding it. By funding it, I mean helping pay for the training of new wellbeing facilitators. And then obviously the funding will go towards making sure they get a rate paid, they're being paid. As soon as this work began, there has been so much positivity and producers with open arms who want to collaborate, which is really great. And there has been some pushback as well. And there has been some discomfort of having the role on set, but we've been working to try and help break that stigma as well, that it's not there to point fingers. It's not there to blame anybody. It's there to help collaborate and help solve problems and try and put steps in place as, uh, you know, preventative steps rather than keep having to intervene and have intervention. I think it should be on every single set. And that was the thing we kind of advocated for for many years, that this needs to be a role that is budgeted for. I mean, we, we had a, we had a silver lining with COVID because, you know, that pretty red dress and all the other productions shut down. We didn't go ahead with the first trial, and not at that point, but it gave us a time to sit and recoup, regroup ourselves. What can this role really be? We dove into it even more. We put pre- presentations together for screen skills. We were able to have pitch meetings with commissioners and producers and so it was a really wonderful silver lining during COVID where we could do that and gain access to people because, you know, their schedules were, they didn't have one anymore. They were able to sit on Zoom and have a chat, you know, and, and the statistics and what happened to us all globally in our mental health, it helped push this role even more. And it meant that when we come on board, we were underneath to begin with COVID budget. And obviously those budgets, and you can see it right there, the industry, we can change the industry because we had to in COVID and how quickly that changed when we had all the different working practices and all the different PPE and the different ways of working was implemented eventually and then successfully so we could get back to work. So there is proof that the industry can change in that way. And so to begin with, COVID budget was what covered the wellbeing facilitator role. And then we basically worked our asses off to make sure that once those budgets were no more, that the role had been proved to continue and that was what was really successful about having returning producers who come back film after film after film after film outside of COVID budget now who are trying to make lines in the budget to have this role available. It's still in its infancy. It's still sometimes only gaining enough money to cover one day a week, which is not good enough in my opinion. Um, the money is there and at least three or four days a week would be ideal. So that's another kind of goal now is to try and break out of just being hired for one day a week contracts, which is helpful. It's really helpful to still have that one day, not denying that. It's really helpful to have that. And that gives, you know, there's still changes that can be made and people who are supported, but it just helps to have a lot more. 
What are some of the policies or guidelines that you're putting into place to enable a safer and more mentally healthy working environment? And, you know, ideally, uh, when, when do you board a production? So we come on board during prep and sometimes we get a nice chunk of time in prep, a week, two weeks, sometimes a couple of days. And it depends on the project. If it's a short film, then it's just like a day's prep, which makes sense. So during that time, we basically explain to producers what the role will do and we have access to scripts. We read the scripts and write stress mental health risk assessments. And by that, I mean, we look through, is there any possible triggering dialogue? Are there scenes that might be difficult for crew to see over and over again if there isn't a close set? And obviously then how the cast going to feel? And from that would normally outline those are the specific days to be present for those scenes. But also mindful of the fact that there are hundreds of crews sometimes that aren't even on set. So and are still working sometimes longer hours. And so can we keep mindful of schedule? The schedules, as you know, are so tight and that seems to have gotten worse throughout my career. It's just they seem to just, there's no, there's no hiatuses anymore really between blocks. So basically we look through any signs that we think might be a problem or what could have crew fatigue at a certain crunch point in the schedule where to apply extra support. And sometimes we send out wellbeing plans and those are confidential. They're between any any cast member or crew member. And they can, from that, share what their concerns might be, what support they may already have in place, and basically build a like, working relationship before we even step foot on set. If they are one day a week contracts, obviously at one day a week, it's going to be hard to see everybody and check in. So sometimes record a one or two minute introduction video as a memo and that goes to everybody. So at least they know what the role is who the person is when they're arriving on set. We kind of make sure that the production has bullying and harassment policies, that they've got all their policies in place and double-checking all of that. And if they don't have them in place, we can help signpost them and help create those. And then on set, basically walking around with a wellbeing facilitator shirt on now, not a mental health first aider shirt. And if people want to come and chat, they can walk away off set. If I'm lucky enough to have an office, which has only happened once, they'll come to the office. And it's basically anything they want to talk about. So personal things going on, if they want to offload in the inside posting, sometimes they just want to be heard. A lot of the time people just want to rant because finally like decades and decades of stress and terrible jobs and finally there's a place to speak, it all comes out. And if it's about work-related issues, then we advise with their consent about how to move forward. If it's bullying and harassment, checking the bullying and harassment policies with their consent, advise to speak with the producers or talk with whoever it is, their HOD, help empower them to have that voice to tackle that. Sometimes be in meetings with them as a neutral third party, which I've done many times, to make sure that everyone's being heard and kind of be a witness as to the conversations. And it really is similar to standby art directing in terms of you never know what's going to change last minute or what's going to happen, and you're communicating with people and you're helping with people and you're trying to make sure it's all above board. Send weekly anonymous reports to the producers to say like these are the crunch points these are the um the hot topics that have happened these are the things that are causing stress here's maybe a solution about how to change that for next week or for the next block maybe implement this and try and help guide how the changes could happen and that's it basically just keep going for all of that and hope that it does actually help and it isn't just a policy or a box ticking exercise that there's actually action being taken and obviously some roles don't start work until the post. So the editors, composers, and that's the part that our budget sometimes doesn't extend to, even though we explain, and that's just because it's a new role. But to have that support available for those people too is something that we're focusing on as well. Do you also concentrate your work you know, more on producers because all of the information is obviously being funneled through them. So I imagine it might sometimes feel like from their perspective that, you and and the work that you're doing is just another thing to think about or communicate to the rest of the team you know how do you stop well-being um from being something that feels like a burden and and actually is you know something that can alleviate you know everyone's stress including the producers that's a really great question at the very beginning there was there were producers who found it like eye-rolling this is something else I have to cover now because there are so many wonderful initiatives where they have to make sure there's diverse and inclusivity their their footprint with Albert and all these things they've got to prove so we were really mindful of coming in and not giving them here's some more 
work that you have to deal with and here's some more awareness so we basically come in and this is why the prep time is really important to explain that we do this with you and kind of for you in terms of being boots on the ground and basically anything that comes up to a well-being facilitator will always try to make sure that it doesn't go to producers unless absolutely necessary obviously if it's bullying harassment so we'll always try and work with the crew member or the cast member with their HODs try and solve anything in the moment on the ground in that specific department or if it's if it's personal things that don't need to go to production stay with that crew member or cast member and, and check in with them and help get them stronger and healthier signpost them so they can do their job effectively and doesn't have to the, the producers don't know about half the stuff that we tend to and so it's kind of reminding them that actually we're, we're, we're making sure that we're helping prevent any issues come your way but obviously when they do come your way we need support collaboration and it's usually after that conversation and because of it's such a new role, once they understand that, they're more on board and understand, that, okay, I don't have to deal with any of that. I, it's, it's fine. You only deal with it as and when. But our goal is to make sure that it doesn't come your way. Because I think a lot of the time, line producers and first ADs say, oh, they do that all the time. They do a role of a wellbeing facilitator. And, and, and makeup artists who have artists in the chair. I've met so many of them. They're like, yeah, we do basically what you do already. But it's just to, to alleviate them as well. So they're not holding it and carrying it. Which begs the question, who alleviates you? Because you're acting as this recipient, you know, for all this information and the stress and anxiety. So you must need a place to put all of that after a day on set. How are you taking care of yourself in this role? Yeah, an excellent question again. And it is really vital and important to have those boundaries. So in our training, uh, Michelle White is a positive psychologist and a co-director of Six Feet from the Spotlight. And she basically helps focus on ethics and boundaries as well as emotional regulation and other tools to handle resilience and um, empowering the individual but in terms of what we're talking about now the boundaries and ethics is really important and the more people we train and the more contracts we have and the more people out there working we hold or Michelle holds supervising groups so we hold them on zoom so well-being facilitators can come together no specific person's name or project is really mentioned, but it's more of this situation happened, that situation happened. What happens if this happens? What do I do if this person does this? This is how I'm feeling. Uh, it's a space for them to basically, it's a space for everybody to essentially rant and get off their chest what people have been coming to them about or ask for advice about what they could do differently next time or how to handle a certain situation. And I always wonder with these, I always wonder with these scenarios and then I'm like, well, where does Michelle go then when she carries all of that? And then when does her therapist go to when they, it's ongoing. And obviously having your own self-care as, you know, that's really important. Having an awareness of your own boundaries and making sure that you're grounded as much as possible and that you're doing whatever it needs, whatever that looks like to make sure that you're taking care of yourself as well and putting yourself first, really. You know, it's that really, it's that it's that scenario which is true about putting your own oxygen mask on first before you help anybody else. So yeah, six feet from the spotlight, we're mindful of what wellbeing facilitators may be carrying and what they're tending to in terms of travel for work. And so the door's always open to check in with uh, myself, Matt and Michelle. And sometimes we set up WhatsApp groups so they can talk to each other, so they can just stay in touch and get advice from each other and communicate. Well, on that note, I would love to hear about some of your self-care tips because I know you're very good at sharing them on Instagram, um, especially, you know, about travelling for work and sometimes for long periods of time, which can obviously be disruptive to all sorts of routines and, and diets. You know, how do you go about situating and settling yourself in that environment? I'll start with the travel bit first because I've done a lot of that this year and I would be, I'm not going to lie, I didn't enjoy a lot of it it was essential for me to remain employed. So one, one, of the, one of the tips that I would advise that helped me is, you know, to try and have the same hotel in terms of uh, the hotels that were stayed in, the rooms are the same layout wherever you go. So there's consistency there. So as soon as you arrive, it may be a different room, but everything is in exactly the same layout. So it's essentially like a home away from home. It's nothing, you don't have to re calibrate yourself or resituate yourself and that be a stress so that's just that's done I carry with me the same sort of scent whether that's my my perfume or 
hair products, whatever, it's the same scent. So it's like, that's what I smell like when I'm at home or that's what I smell around me when I'm at home. Sometimes I take my yoga mat because uh, again, it's an item that's familiar to me from home and I'll lay it out. Sometimes I don't even use it. I'm not going to lie. I just lay it out as if it's like a carpet on the floor. So it's something I recognize from when I'm at home. And the food one is tricky. The food one's tricky. And again, I'm not going to lie. I'm not an angel. There have been times where I've eaten Cocoa Pops for dinner because I'm just like, I can't sit in another restaurant and have Pizza Express again or Wagamama again. We're clearly advertising on this podcast. I can't eat the same food again and again. And so that can be tricky. And obviously get fed on set and try and remain healthy and eating on set. Try not to, you know, eat all the fried breakfasts in the morning. Pause and think, if this was a regular day, would I be eating this anyway? Probably not. But just because it's there, people do. And our food and nutrition really affects us. So those are the kind of main things that I, I, I stick to. And when I'm on set, what we said before about standby art directing, it's essentially the same, you know, whether you're on location or in a studio, it's a set, it's a unit, there's a tech base, there's a unit base. So that is a routine in itself that is regular enough. And I usually get into the routine while I go to base in the morning I'll do the rounds at base, check who's in the trailers, um, say hello to everybody who's there who's never going to be on set or doesn't go on set that much. And then the routine is then to go around set, say hello to people. If there's anyone working from home, email, check in. So there's kind of like a routine. And that routine is hard to keep. I find it hard to keep routines. There's a kind of rough outline and structure is to try and keep as much as possible. Are you able to see the tangible effects of your presence on set? You know, does it feel like a calmer or less heightened environment when you're there? They're very different experiences I've had this year, especially. I've had, just to give you kind of a clashing, dramatic, honest experience. I've been on sets where when I arrive, there's, I can feel it. But when I arrive, there's a sense of tension, like I'm there to watch people. And that's not what I'm there for. So normally when I feel that, I walk away and I just kind of slowly come in. Sometimes I'm inundated as soon as I arrive where people are like, right, this happened yesterday. This is happening this morning. This is what I think you should keep an eye on. And then I just kind of wander around and um, go to those places that have come my way. Overall, it's been positive. Overall, Whenever I've been on set, things have been a little bit calmer and smoother, which is great and which is verbalized to me at the end of the day. Or people have said they notice a difference where I think people suddenly shift their behaviors or they're aware that the presence is there in terms of being a neutral person that could see things and call things out in terms of behavior that's not acceptable. So there is a shift. Unfortunately, I then get told that when I'm not there, it all just goes back to how it was, which is not great. And... I think what well, I think some some producers I think struggle I'll be honest about this some producers struggle I think because because of that fear of speaking up a lot of people especially if it's only one day a week a lot of people will wait until a, a well-being facilitator arrives and then they'll tell everything about what happened and I'm like we we explain to the crew and cast please don't wait for that one day a week for the well-being facilitator to arrive tell the producers tell the production that's what they're there for so there are times when a well-being facilitator will arrive where they're very busy and all of a sudden everything seems heightened. And some producers spot that and don't like that because suddenly the day when I arrive, it's really stressful and busy and it's just because things have come to the surface. And again, not there to point fingers and not there to to cause that anxiety. We're there to help understand that why are people not saying anything when a well-being facilitator is not there? Let's look at that and be honest. And let's see what we can deal with when a WBF is present. What can or do you do to encourage people to speak up? You know, even if there is someone made available to them, people don't always know how to ask for that help. So how do you go about, I guess, incentivizing or just encouraging that? Um, try and find, I think I've, I've told a few people to try and find, and maybe they already have a, a good, solid worker relationship with the crew around them. Keep, you know, talk to other crew members. If, you, if you're spotting something or you're feeling something's not right, See if someone else is picking up on it or two. Or let someone else know that I think I might be being bullied or I'm not sure. Try and have that dialogue with your peers around you that you trust. Also, be mindful of the policies. I know we get sent so many attachments and emails 
and no one really reads them. But if you have a minute, remind yourself of those bullying harassment policies and guidelines about this is a legal requirement that this production has and know that you can follow those steps and speak up and make a complaint or a formal complaint or ask for advice. You're, you're, you know, we all have a right to do that. We have a right to do that. But I understand that it's hard. So I think focus on having a conversation with your peers and seriously moving forward to talk to producers and know that talking to a producer doesn't mean you're going to get fired. Unfortunately, I know it does happen sometimes, which is completely illegal and ridiculous. I think just be mindful of those policies. You know, they are more than just paper. And I'd love to know what your ambitions are in your career. You know, is there a world where you go back to stand by art direction or would you say that this is your new calling? And if so, what would you like this role to grow into? I would like this, see this role and what we're aiming for grow into is, like I said before, to be hired for more than one day a week to make a real effective change for it to be... I think I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it will be. Give it a few more years as well that it'll just become a standard role and it will just be there and to make sure that there will be budgets available for it. Standby art directing. Every now and again, I miss it. I think I'd only do it if I knew personally the team, the art department. I mean, in 2021, I was offered 15 or so jobs. It was when it was really busy and there were no crew anywhere and I, I turned them all down because I knew that the wellbeing facilitator role was taking off and I knew I wanted to have my heart in that. But I don't know, to be honest, about standby directing. A part of my brain is like, I will do it for the money. But I also said years ago, as soon as I start doing this for the money, I can't do it anymore because it takes too much hours of your life and stress. <laughs> yeah, I don't know is the answer. I think it's fine to not know and also to admit that. Leo, I'm wondering next if there's a piece of advice that you've been given um, that maybe you return to or that has steered your course. One thing that pops in my mind, a couple of art directors said this to me years ago, was you can only control what you can control, basically. And a lot of the stress and anxiety I was feeling once was because I was trying to control things that were completely out of my control. So... Just focus on what you can do and focus on controlling that, basically. And also a reminder that one, actually, this was at the beginning of my career. I remember going for an interview with my, when I went for an interview with my portfolio and I was so nervous and I left a job to go and have a interview with someone and the art director, I said I was really nervous and the art director at the same time, Mike Stallion, I think it was, he said, it's really good that you're nervous because that means that you want it. And it means that you're passionate and that you care. And that really stuck with me. So whenever now when I feel nervous, I stop and pause and think, why? And it's because I care. And it's because I'm passionate about what I want to do and what I believe in. So whenever those nerves pop up, I take a beat and assess and I know that it's for the right reasons. That's really lovely that he acknowledged that, though. Like, I think sometimes, you know, it, it helps also to to um, say it out loud, you know, and just to admit to it rather than bottle it up inside because sometimes that in itself, just saying it to an audience, it just seems to kind of dissipate the nervous energy or tension. Yeah, I, I, I usually confess to it most of the time that I'm nervous and in saying that, yeah, it releases the pressure of I'm a human being. It's natural to be nervous and nervousness isn't actually, you know, there's a, there's a difference between being nervous and like anxious. So it's they feel the same a little bit, but it's like, the nervousness is actually means that you're excited and you're driven and you want to be there and do it and you want to do a good job at it. I get nervous for doing every podcast, I'm not going to lie. Oh, me too. I always I sweat profusely when I'm doing them. So I'm actually kind of grateful to um, be on Zoom and not in a studio. Yeah, me too. Me too. I tell you what, as a trick I do, I've got it under my desk, which won't help the listeners. I've got a shanky pillow thing that's got, it's got, um, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's got like a plastic, spikes on it yeah dig my foot into it and so it keeps me grounded and calm of like it's okay you're here don't float off and get in your head <laughs> oh I have to get one of those yeah just as the podcast is ending I'd also love to know what you're proudest of having achieved in your career so far the two things that come up are I'm so proud of working on pride that is a gift that keeps giving I've been uh, an honorary member of the LGSM 
and I've marched with that banner that I made in the 2019 uh, Paris Pride with members from the LGSM with the real Mike Jackson and just things keep coming up in my life that always connect back to that and it's beautiful and I'm so proud of that of that project and developing this role which is a dream that's finally being utilized and it actually exists in the industry now. And finally, is there a film by a woman or non-binary director that you would like to recommend today? I mean, it's fresh in my head because I saw it yesterday at the film festival is um, uh, Emerald Fennell's Saltburn. <laughs> a very, very dark, hilarious film that touches on so much class. A difference with, I mean, all of her projects do in terms of looking at the class and society it is a wild ride that is for sure <laughs> leo thank you so much for coming on the podcast i've long been fascinated by this role and have direct experience of working with six foot from the spotlight so you can testify to the efficacy of what you do um and yeah i just want to thank you for shedding even more light on it oh thank you thank you it's been a pleasure and thank you for reaching out to have a chat i've not done one of these for a while so you've been a wonderful host thank you very much If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. If you're interested in other conversations like this, please do seek out my episode with documentary producer and psychotherapist Rebecca Day. In the meantime, have a great week and I'll be back next Friday with a brand new episode. <laughs>